So it's good to be back with you guys this week. Uh, last week, I actually ran into somebody this morning. They said, uh, so uh, did you have a nice vacation last week? I said, I wasn't on vacation. I was actually over at Lake Avenue Church preaching. And those people are a lot of work. So I was really working over there. Um, Actually, had a great time over there and was able to share with uh, them our great gratitude because about 50 plus years ago, uh, Lake Avenue sent their then youth pastor over to this church. His name was Dick Anderson. And Pastor Dick came here and God used used pastor to bring about really a significant renewal in the life of this church. And it was kind of, it's kind of fun, you know, there's actually a few people in our church right now who came over with Pastor Dick. They were in his youth ministry and they're still members of this church. I think about Rick and Margie Simpson. Rick, go ahead and lift up your hands so we can. (laughs) Um, Anyway, uh, that was a lot of fun last week. So Before we jump into God's Word, just wanted to remind you that next week we are going to be uh, turning the clocks forward. And I, somebody told me this this morning, and I thought we voted on this. Like, isn't this a democracy? Didn't we, the people, spoke and we're like, no more. And I think that they are going to do away with it. But why do you have to do away with it after we lose an hour of sleep? Just leave it to the government. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving us your word, and we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds, and that you would make us attentive to your voice, and we pray, God, that your spirit would break in, and you would speak to us, you would challenge us, and that you would mold and shape us so that we can be your faithful people in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. 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 So this morning, we are beginning a new series in the Gospel of Luke entitled Stories Along the Way. And we're going to be walking together through a series of stories or parables that Jesus shared with his disciples on his road to Jerusalem. And so in Luke chapter 10, it says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And along the road from Galilee to Jerusalem, Jesus spends time teaching and shaping and molding his disciples and preparing them for life after he departs from them. And it's interesting because one of the ways in which he prepares, in which he seeks to shape and mold his disciples is through the telling of stories. So I have a little book uh, on my shelf by uh, just a wonderful mid-century author whose name is Flannery O'Connor. And uh, this book is called Mystery and Manners, and it's a collection of her essays. And in this book, um, she, she talks about how sometimes people have come to her and they've said, uh, hey, what was, the, what was the point of that story? What was the meaning of that story? And, and she just says, the point of the story is to read the story. If I could just boil it down to you in a point, uh, I wouldn't have needed to tol- tell a story, but I wanted to say something through this story. And then she says this. She says, a story is a way to say something that can't be said any other way. And it takes every word in the story to say what the meaning is. You know, it's kind of interesting to me that when you look at Jesus and what he has left us, uh, what is Jesus? What kind of resources has Jesus given us to help kind of form and shape us to be his followers? 
Well, we could say Jesus has left us a set of practices. In fact, over the last several weeks, we looked at some of those practices, silence and solitude and scripture meditation. And last week, we talked about the bread and the cup, and we've talked about singing. And we've talked about all different kinds of practices that Jesus has left us. And of course, Jesus also left us his magisterial, ethical vision that he gave to us in the Sermon on the Mount. But you know, one of the most significant body of teaching that Jesus gave to us in order to shape and mold us as disciples are stories. And it's as if Jesus knows that there, is, there are parts of us that are only gotten at uh, through a story, that there is truth that can only be communicated through a good story. And so Jesus tells us a number of different parables, a number of different stories in order to introduce us more fully into a life of discipleship. And so this morning, we're going to begin by looking at the first of the stories that Jesus told along the way on this road to Jerusalem. And it is the story of the Good Samaritan. And it's a story that has at its heart a call for you and I to engage in that difficult but life-giving practice of neighbor love. So several years ago now, there was a network of churches in the Denver area that were working together and praying together, and they were really asking the question, how can we impact the city of Denver? And, and they had been going on in different meetings together, and and the defining moment came for these churches when they finally got an audience with the mayor of Denver. And they put the question to the mayor. They said, hey, um, you know, we want to bond, you know, we want to kind of like join together and we want to make an impact in our city. And so they said, you know, what can we do as a collective group of churches to help our city? And the mayor, who was not a Christian, uh, he told them about research that had been done on the key factors that has led to decrease in crime and suicide and substance abuse and domestic violence and the kind of stuff that, that has, has uh, research has shown increases kind of a positive social well-being. And he said that what they found was this. He said that communities, suburban or urban, upper or lower class neighborhoods, where they saw a reduction in all the bad stuff and an increase in all the good stuff, were, were, was communities where people knew their neighbors. And they understood each other and they looked after each other. And they took an interest in the well-being of each other. And then this mayor looked at the pastors and said, do you want to make a difference? He said, then here's what I would encourage you to do. Teach your people to love their neighbors. And this morning, we're going to look at this story that Jesus told us that is really the call par excellence of us to love our neighbors. And I want you to see that the story Jesus tells is prompted by a question. Look at where it begins. It says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So the story begins with a question, and it's a really good question. It is the most important of questions because it deals with the very essence of life itself. 
He says, what can I do to inherit eternal life? How can I enter into the good life? It's a really good question. But I want you to see that it's not an honest question. Instead, the text tells us that it's a test. He stood up to put Jesus to the test because the text tells us that he was a lawyer. Now, don't misunderstand. When the Bible talks about a lawyer, it's not talking about Larry H. Parker. No, a lawyer in the biblical world was a Bible scholar. This is somebody who spent their time pouring over and studying and having all of, you know, earning all of their letters and their degrees about the Bible. And this is a Bible scholar who's come up from Jerusalem, and he's heard about this uncredentialed, uh, itinerant teacher, uh, this rabbi from Galilee. And so he goes up there to test and to see if Jesus is legit. But I want you to notice what happens. Jesus, in a very Jesus-y fashion, turns the table, and the examiner becomes the examined, and Jesus puts a question to the man who asks the questions. Verse 26, he said to him, well, you know the Bible. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Eli Wiesel, the great Jewish philosopher, was once asked by an interviewer, why do you Jews always answer a question by asking another question? To which he responded, why not? (laughs) (laughs) So Jesus puts a question to the questioner, and he says, you know, you're, you're a Bible student. How do you read the law? I just, I just love it. Jesus, in essence, is now testing the Bible scholar. He wants to know, do you know? And this Bible scholar's no slouch. He's a student of Torah. And so he answers with excellent Bible acumen and the perfect correctness that you would expect from a man with his education. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So he says, love God and love neighbor, because genuine love of God always, it always issues in practical and creative and redemptive love of neighbor. So the Bible scholar nails it, you know, and Jesus says, great, you know, good job, my young Padawan, you know, Um, I love it. Jesus answered him, you have answered correctly. You passed the test. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. And the implication is not flattering for the Bible scholar, you know, it's one thing to study, interpret, teach, explain, memorize, and pour over God's word. It's another thing to do it. And Jesus seems to say, your Bible knowledge is worthless if it does not manifest itself in a life of practical love. Now, the interchange could have ended right there, but it doesn't because the Bible scholar, the text tells us, felt a need at this point to justify himself. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You know, he's felt the sting of Jesus's rejoinder, and he doesn't like where this conversation is going. Uh, He doesn't like what the test has revealed about himself. And so in an effort to maintain control of the conversation, he asks a question. 
Oftentimes, if you want to remain in control of a conversation, you, you, you are the one who's asking the questions. Jesus, I came to you to ask the questions. You're here to answer me. And so in an effort to maintain control of the conversation, he asked this notoriously difficult and debated question. He says, who is my neighbor? In other words, what are the limitations of neighbor love? Who falls within my circle of responsibility of who I am to love? You know, and um, the, 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 the question that he raises here was much debated in the world of Jesus because it hinged upon the interpretation of this little passage in the book of Leviticus, uh, where the neighbor command originates. And that passage says this, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so they debated who falls within the circle of your obligation to love. And according to this passage in Leviticus, and according to the common interpretation, it looks like Leviticus tells us who's in the circle of who you are to love. Who is your neighbor? Well, it seems like he's saying the people who are your neighbor are your own people. You know, some of you guys use that phrase, you know, those aren't my people, you know, these are my people. Those are not my people. Did you know that it originated in the book of Leviticus? But uh, the, the, the major interpretation basically went like this. My neighbor that I am obligated to love, they're my people. It's the people who look like me, who vote like me, who talk like me, who have a shared experience as I do. Uh, they, they, we, they dress like me. I mean, and, and I can love them well because I relate to them and I know them and they're, with, they're my people. And so I, I empathize with them. But the people who are outside, the other, like, I don't have an obligation to love them. So this was the standard interpretation. And, um, but then there was this question like, well, then if your neighbor were your people, who were your people? And the big debate in Jesus's day was, um, was it faithful Jews or was it all Jews? Uh, was it faithful Jews, the ones who kept Torah, was it all Jews? Could you, in other words, were you obligated to love a tax collector Jew or a prostitute Jew? But nobody said you were obligated to love people who were not Jewish, you certainly wouldn't be obligated to love people outside that social boundary, and certainly not those dreaded, awful half-breeds, the Samaritans. And so he says, uh, Jesus, who is my neighbor that I'm called to love? And no doubt he's thinking that he's going to get Jesus entangled in a controversy, maybe expose something of Jesus, because Jesus, of course, has been eaten with tax collectors and sinners. He's like, oh, yeah, we're going to see if Jesus is going to talk about loving those kind of people. And so he raises this question to Jesus. And again, Jesus, in the most Jesus-y fashion possible, responds like this. Well, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, He's like, would you just answer the question? Why you always got to tell a story? You know, why can't you, why, you got, why can't you just be more straightforward, Jesus? Jesus isn't. He says, well, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among some robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half 
dead. So the story Jesus tells begins with a man on the road to Jericho. Everyone in Jesus's audience knew this. We all know about this road. We know how dangerous it was. You know, the road from Jericho uh, to Jerusalem was 17 miles, and it, it, was, it went on a 3,300-foot descent, and it had twists and curves. There were caves and crevices and a lot of dark places, and it was notoriously dangerous. Robbery was not uncommon, murder not infrequent, and as this man is on a 17-mile journey, he is jumped by some thugs, uh, he's robbed, he's stripped, he's beaten, and he's left for half dead. But as G and Jesus is telling, as luck would have it, a priest shows up. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, this, this is great. A priest shows up because he'll know his Bible, you know? Uh, the Bible said that if your neighbor's donkey was stuck in a ditch, you needed to stop and help your neighbor. And if the donkey was stuck in a ditch, if you were obligated to help the donkey, how much more a human being who's created in the image of God? I mean, if you'd spend that much money at the vet on your cat, how much more on a human being who's created in the image of God? And so, you know, it's like, how lucky? You know, a priest shows up, a guy who knows the Bible. But of course, the luck is short-lived because he sees and he passes on. Now, all hope's not lost because a Levite comes, a Levite. But when he came to the place, he also saw him, and he passed by on the other side. Now, we wonder, why, why don't the religious leaders, I mean, this is a priest and a Levite. They're supposed to be the model of the mercy and justice of God, you know, a model of covenant loyalty. Why don't they stop and help the guy? And maybe, maybe it was because the priest didn't want to compromise his purity. You know, they're on their way to the temple. And if you touch a dead body, it would defile you and you wouldn't be able to do your work at the temple. And so maybe he's operating with a very strong religious conviction. I can't compromise my purity. I won't be able to serve people. Maybe he's got a really good excuse. Or maybe, maybe he's just afraid. I mean, if those thugs just jump the guy are still around, I could put my own life in jeopardy if I go and help this guy. I can't stop and help him. Too vulnerable. Or maybe it's not fear or it wasn't his concern about, you know, his ritual purity. Maybe, maybe it's just that here on the lonely road to Jericho, the religious guys don't have an audience. You know, when I was a surfer, I still surf, but when I was younger, and I, I really kind of was into competitive surfing, this sort of thing, I remember a maneuver that I did that was really good or something that really happened that was really good never felt as good as it would as it did if somebody was watching, <laughs> right? And maybe the problem is that on the lonely road to Jericho, nobody is there to see the pious men do these good works. And why put your life on the line if you don't get credit? And so what Jesus says next, though, is going to take everyone's breath away in the audience. Now, just pause, because it's hard, it's hard for us in the 21st century to imagine just how shocking what Jesus is going to say next will be. You know, um, 
he, he goes on, he says, but a Samaritan, but a Samaritan. Samaritans in the world of Jesus were, were considered half-breeds. They were racial outsiders. Uh, think institutionalized racism. Think apartheid South Africa. Uh, think about uh, Jim Crow laws in the South back in the early part of, of the 20th. Think, think that kind of world and think about the views that one person had about others, and that's the kind of world that you're entering into. And Jesus says, and now a Samaritan, the half-breed, the one who is less than human, the one who is not my neighbor, the one who is definitely not my people, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Note the contrasting characters. The priest, he came, he saw, and he passed by. The Levite, he came, he saw, and he passed by. But the Samaritan, he comes and he sees differently. He, his scene was characterized by compassion. And he is overwhelmed with compassion by this half-dead man on the side of the road. He, he doesn't know whether or not he's Jewish. He doesn't know whether or not he's Samaritan. It doesn't matter if he's Jew or Samaritan because who is lying before him is not Jew or Samaritan. It is a human created in the image of God. And he is overwhelmed by what's happened to this guy. And, and, and he, he, is, he is overcome with a love that leads to practical action. And he seems to know exactly what to do, like he does this all the time. Look at what it says, verse 34. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever you spend, I will repay back to you when I come back. He doesn't hesitate to use his own clothes for a bandage. Perhaps he took the sash or head wrap off that he was wearing. He expends his own oil and wine and puts the wounded man on his own donkey, which he himself has been riding. And now he walks alongside of him, holding the man up so he doesn't fall off. And then he pays for two days at the inn with his own money. But he's shrewd as well. You know, he doesn't put limitless cash in the innkeeper's hands, but promises to pay the rest on his next regular trip back up the road. He's practical and businesslike. His compassion is not sentimental, but real and effective. And now Jesus stands back and he looks at the Bible scholar, he looks at the crowd, and he looks at all of us in this room. And he asks a simple question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And we just imagine the religious leader, I mean, it's one of those questions you, you wish he wouldn't have asked. But there it is, hanging in the air. And I almost imagine the Bible scholar saying, it was the, it was the one who showed him mercy. He said, it was the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Do you see what Jesus has done in this brilliant story? Jesus has turned the question from, who is my neighbor? Who am I obligated to love to a different question? Will I, will you 
be a neighbor. Which one proved to be a neighbor? And he says, now go and do likewise. And I want to suggest that in this story, Jesus is wanting to do three things to us, I, I think, at least as I read it. Number one, I think that Jesus, by the way, I have a different piece of artwork for each point, and none of them are artwork that I myself have drawn. <laughs> this is Van Gogh. Number one, I, I think in our story, very clearly, very forthrightly, Jesus is calling us out of passivity and into practical love. Jesus is calling you and I out of passivity and indifference to those image bearers who are suffering and into active love. You know, I think we live in a culture right now that is habituating us to passivity in the face of human need. You know, you think about how much need we are exposed to every day of our lives on the news, you know, on our feed, uh, on social media. It's like again and again and again, it's just like we're, we're exposed to crazy need, radical need, you know, and, 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 and we can just feel paralyzed in the face of, of all of the need. And it can result in a passivity. It can result in indifference. Eli Wiesel once said, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. It's when you see real need and you're just passive and you are indifferent and you do nothing. You know, I think my favorite uh, word coined in 2020 was the word slacktivist. Have you guys heard this word? One more status liked, one more problem solved, you know? Like, it, it's, it, slacktivist is somebody who engages in their activism in a way that requires little or no personal involvement. We're being habituated to see and not engage and not do. And so here, Jesus is calling us out of passivity and into practical love. You know, our life reflects our loves, doesn't it? Who we love and how we love is the real index of our heart before God. Or as John, one of Jesus' followers, put it, if anyone has the world's goods, which is most of us in this room, and yet sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how can the love of God abide in him? Or to just put it more practical, if, if at a worship service you are exposed to uh, people who are unhoused in Los Angeles who need simple sheets and bed coverings, and you close your heart to them, and you don't go and you buy the stuff and, and participate in this, like how can, how can you say the love of God abides in your own heart? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on you. And the last thing I want to do is to put on you a burden which I myself cannot bear. Jesus had really harsh words for religious teachers like myself who lay on people burdens that they themselves can't bear. You know, last night, um, my wife and I were out at dinner, and we, uh, we, we, we were walking into the restaurant. As we were walking in, there was a couple with a little girl that was walking out, and there was a, a woman that was clearly, like, infuriated and angry, and she blurted out, Somebody help me, somebody help me. And, and we walked by, 
And my wife looked at the little girl who looked up at her with longing eyes. And um, we walked upstairs. And, um, and, and, and Alicia was like, should we go down and do something? And I was like, I, I talked her out of it. You know, I'm like, no, we don't want to get involved. And we don't want to get like, that was a domestic thing that... And I don't know whether or not that was a right move or not, but a little bit later in dinner, Alicia said, um, aren't you preaching on the Good Samaritan tomorrow? <laughs> and I'm like, look, don't use my sermon against me. <laughs> Jesus is inviting us to see needs and meet them to not talk ourselves out of it, to use our resources and expend them to meet real human need. Now, I know that th there is no end of human need in the world. But what are the needs that are proximate to you and me? This was a stranger that was right in the middle of the road that he was walking down. Who are the strangers in front of you? Now, we live in a time and place where we can actually use resources and alleviate need. I know we have all the reasons in our head, well, if we give money to that person, they're just going to use it and use it on booze or whatever. And, and that may be true. You know, I remember C.S. Lewis uh, was walking down the road one day with a buddy of his, and there was a homeless guy that walked by, and he gave him some money, and they were walking on, and his friend said, why did you just do that, Jack? Which is what C.S. Lewis was called. You know, don't you know he's just going to spend it on cigarettes and beer? And Lewis said, yeah, but if I kept the money, I would have spent it on cigarettes and beer. So. <laughs> but we do tend to use a standard on others that we don't use on ourselves. And I have been convicted by a family member of mine who has been homeless at different times and who herself would be the quickest person to take the last dollar she has and give it to somebody on the streets. I'm not saying that that's necessarily what we ought to do in those kind of circumstances. There are organizations like URM that do incredibly helpful work holistic work, and they need financial resources. You talk to Tim Peters, who works at Union Rescue Mission, he will not say our greatest need is volunteers. They need volunteers. They need money. They need money so they can keep expanding the resources they have and doing the good work that they have. So Jesus is calling us out of passivity and into practical love. But I want you to see that Jesus is doing something more specific, more particular, maybe even something more challenging than this text. Jesus is not only in our text calling us out of passivity and indifference and into practical love. Jesus, secondly, is challenging us to look past the stereotypes and see the person. I love this depiction of the Good Samaritan. I love the eye contact. I love the scene. And Jesus in our story is inviting us to look past the stereotype, the prejudice, the caricature, and to see the human person right in front of our eyes. In other words, love extends beyond my people to all people. All humans are the objects of the great love of God, and all humans ought to be the object of the great love from our own hearts and lives. And we need to learn how to look past the stereotypes and see the person. You know, um, in this passage, I think what's fascinating to me, like, 
I, I, for, for many years, my, 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 my read of this text was that it was primarily about us crossing boundaries and loving people that are hard for us to love. But actually, this is not about a Jewish guy who crosses boundaries and loves the hard-to-love Samaritan guy. This is a story that deconstructs Jewish stereotypes of what those Samaritans were like. You know, we have in our culture the saying, the good Samaritan. Like, that's that's like a modern thing. Like, they didn't use the adjective good before Samaritan in the ancient world. The only good Samaritan was a dead Samaritan, was a bad Samaritan. Like, they were not, like, and, and here Jesus is doing something. He is actually pulling down their arrogant self-image of the religious leaders, and he is exalting the low view they had of the other. And if the gospel does not begin to do this in your own life, if it doesn't begin to humble you and make you more aware of your own indifference and your passivity and your need for grace, and if it doesn't you know, begin to enable you to lift others up on your own donkey, as it were, get you off your high horse and put them on there so that people who are other than you, you actually, you assume the best of. I mean, this is the best possible picture of a Samaritan you could have. This guy is, is awesome. This guy is the hero, and the hero is the Samaritan. Korean-American pastor Eugene Chow said, I am more than a stereotype. He put this on a post that he gave at the head of uh, uh, Asian American History Month. And, And he wrote in this article about how he was just tired of the tropes and the caricatures and the stereotypes that were being perpetuated in TV and film and on social media of Asians. And he wrote this to say, look, I am not, I'm a human being. You know, and we, we, we often do this. We stereotype people. We caricature people who are not like us. Uh, we, 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 we tend to look down on people who are not our people, who are not our political persuasion, that are the, the, the libs or the uh, old whiteies or the Mexicans or the immigrants or any other nomenclature we give to them out there. And it's so easy to stereotype and then to shoot guns at the stereotype. Jesus is deconstructing the stereotype. And Lamont famously said, you can safely assume you have created God in your image when it turns out he hates all the same people as you do. The North African bishop, St. Augustine, once prayed, my heart is too cramped for you to enter. Widen it out. Which people is your heart too cramped for you to allow to enter in so that you empathize with them? and that you care about them, that you seek to understand them. Look past the stereotype and see the person. I remember when I was interviewing for this church, uh, one of the questions that was put to me was, uh, they said, Josh, what are your opinions about how the church should respond to the gay community? 
And in answer to that question, I just said, I, I don't know a large block of people called the gay community. What, what I know are gay friends or family members or, like, I, I know people who have been in my home and I've heard their stories and I know them. Like, and they're not a block of people. The, these, the, and, and some are in this community. And these are people with heartache and with insecurities and fears and with brokenness and sin, just like us. And, and Jesus is inviting us to look past the stereotype and enter empathetically with the human person who is created in the image of God before your eyes. And my friends, as we enter into, oh, Lord, help us, another political season. May God, get, I mean, like what Jesus is doing here in essence, I mean, if you could imagine a group of the most progressive you know, uh, university uh, professors around. The most, you know, woke university professors around. Jesus gathers them together. And the hero of the story is a NASCAR-watching, Coors Light-drinking, mega-hat-wearing old white guy. Is the person who reaches down and helps the BLM protester that got beat up. Or the hero of the story for the group of the strongest fundamentalists is it is the trans person that bends down and helps the, the conservative guy who got beat up. Do you, do you see what Jesus is? He's like deconstructing stereotypes. I am not exaggerating. This is what Jesus is doing in the story. And this is why the stories are important for us to enter into and let form and shape and mold us as disciples. So Jesus is challenging us to look past the stereotypes and to see the person. What you see when you see the person are people just like you with your own insecurities, your brokenness, your fears, all the stuff that makes you like, I'm, I'm afraid that you would really know. Like, see the person. But Jesus is doing one more thing in the story. Jesus, Jesus in our story is challenging us to move past our passivity and into practical love. He is, he is challenging us to move past the stereotypes and see the person. But thirdly and finally, Jesus in our story is exposing our paternalism and showing us our own need. You know, there's dangers on all sides. You know, you might, you might not fall in the danger of passivity and indifference. You might be the hero. Like you owe, like there's nobody who you won't welcome into your home. There's nobody who you won't welcome at your table. You are the hero who is there to save everyone. You know, paternalism is a real issue, isn't it? There's a story told of a church that um, had this, uh, this citywide campaign to go and serve uh, the community, and it was a, a upper middle class white suburban church, and they went to serve in the urban core, and they branded their whole serve day as serving the last, the least, and the lost. And they made these t-shirts that said, serving the last, the least, and the lost. And they went into the urban core, and they, they painted a, uh, a community center, and then they invited all the people who didn't actually look 
anything like this group, to come in and to, to, to see them and to thank them. And they all walked in, and, and at once, all the people who were painting turned around, and they had these shirts communicating to the community just who they were. You are the last, the least, and the lost. And here we are. We have come to save you. You know, you know there's an air of paternalism about this lawyer. Who is my neighbor that I should love? You know, the lawyer asks the questions. He can't imagine himself as the recipient of someone else's help. You know, the one in need, he can't imagine himself needing a neighbor or celebrate recovery or any such thing. He's a Bible scholar. He has the answers. He conducts the tests. He's the religious master, the dispenser of righteousness. His posture in life is that of righteous man before God. And therein lies his fatal weakness. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this, but the story that Jesus told, I mean, it's so brilliant. Like, Jesus is so brilliant. Like, this story is odd in the extreme. And we're going to close here, but listen. Jesus, you know, uses kind of a classic mode of storytelling where there's three characters. You know, it's the blonde, the brunette, and the redhead, or it's the, uh, the priest and the pastor and the rabbi. And um, we, you know, the stories that have catalogs of threes. And what's interesting, Jesus seems to be telling a story about a priest, a Levite, and you would think the third person in the, in the, in the story would be the scribe, because he's talking to the scribe. There was a priest, a Levite, and a scribe. But he doesn't tell that story. Instead, he tells a story about a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. And I just think, like, if Jesus would have told a different story about a scribe that helped the Samaritan, I think the scribe would have been challenged by that, convicted by that, like, oh, yeah, that's going to be hard. But... I think he could have swallowed that. Like, yeah, I can, I, can, I can be the good guy that helps the Samaritan. But Jesus doesn't cast the scribe in that role. Instead, the Samaritan is cast. The outsider, the one who is other, is cast in that role. Where's the scribe in the story? And I suggest that the scribe is intended to see himself in the man who is lying half dead on the ditch in need of a neighbor. And friend, this is the very beginning, the middle, and the end of the Christian life. It is growing in your awareness that before the face of God, you are lying half dead spiritually in need of a neighbor. You know, it's been famous in Christian artwork to depict Jesus in the role of the Good Samaritan because Jesus truly has been our Good Samaritan. Jesus is the hero of our story. Jesus came among us and he didn't just leave a donkey. He left heaven and earth so that, or he might, he left heaven and came to earth so that he might identify with us, and he didn't just risk his life among thieves, he died between two thieves. And he didn't just pay two nights at an inn, he paid for our redemption at the cost of his very life so that you can be healed, so that you can be rescued. And where the Christian life begins, where our posture toward neighbors begins, 
is with an ongoing, ever-growing awareness that we are broken people in need of a savior. I want to invite our band to come up. So we close in this final song. It is really a song that celebrates the radical, redemptive, healing love of God that came among us to rescue us, to lift us up, and to bring healing and salvation in our lives. And may we raise our voices today as those who have been redeemed by this kind of radical, sacrificial, incarnate neighbor love. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you might expose in our own lives where there is passivity, where there's indifference, where there's prejudice. God, would you expose our own paternalism? And would you humble us? And would you open up our hands? And would you open up our eyes that we would see that broken in the ditch that we are, you have come to be our neighbor and to carry us not simply on a donkey, but on your own back into the grave and out into resurrection and into new creation and new life. God, would you enable us in receiving this love to be able to be witnesses and agents of this kind of empathy and love and compassion and mercy in this world. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.